Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Out of the gate, ready to go. OutKick 360 is back. Wednesday edition is here from 6th and Peabody with E-Hop here in Old Moonshine. Glad you're with us. Beautiful day in the city. Hopefully it's the same for you wherever you're watching or listening this afternoon. With Chad Withrow and Paul Kaharski, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Pro Football of Hall of Famer to be as a part of the class of 2022 this August, Dick Vermeil. Soon to be Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil will join us in 20 minutes. Looking forward to that chat. Dan Dockage on today's program. That will be at 320 Central, 420 Eastern. Plus a lot to discuss in the third hour, including how to screenshot what the Rams have done, not with their parade today, but how they built the championship winner through their head coach, Sean McVay. Guys, um, here's hoping that whenever we actually throw this parade for Withrow here in town for his Braves, maybe we do that whenever the lockout ends, we throw a parade for that, that it, more people show up than what showed up in L.A. today for the, the Rams. Really not surprising that uh, the city of Los Angeles would not have a huge <laughs> parade turnout. For a team that had a hard time selling tickets to their own fans for an NFC Championship game. So uh, that does not surprise me one bit. And the lockout ending would surprise me at this point to where we well, could yeah. finally have that Braves Championship parade. LeBron suggested uh, piggybacking a, uh, a Lakers-Dodgers-Rams parade since <clears throat> not everybody got their parades because of, of COVID. And it seems like it wouldn't have been a bad idea. Um, based on, uh, now some of the pictures are good. Some of the videos are good. Some are less than good. It's only 1.1 mile route from what I read last well, so night. The, and let, to me, the let, me, let me throw out another kind of weird, just possible option here. And not that many fans. No parade. <laughs> Why a parade? Like it's, it's, what time is a parade? it's 2022. <laughs> we don't have to do a parade. If you know your own fan base, you know, that's not going to work. Do a damn beach party. Do something yes. different. It doesn't need That's to be a, a parade. Idea. Go rent out an airplane hangar like you did for your team party and invite season ticket holders to come out where you know you're going to get a base of people that will be there excited to mingle with the players and coaches and throw a big party. The parade is so outdated. I say this as someone who enjoys taking my kids to a nice well, parade. I hate parades. But, but I, I will why say, always a parade? I will say in certain cities and certain places, like in New York, the Canyon of Heroes, you, you throw a damn parade. Fine, yeah. Right. Certain cities, yes. Yeah. Um, but I like your beach idea. But we just came from L.A. Instead and of going a, to El Segundo for a parade. There's a hell of a lot of traffic there. So their inability to generate traffic is remarkable to me because they could generate traffic for anything. Well, you people going to a restaurant is a traffic event. Yeah, but they're LA. used to it. It's we're not used to that traffic jam. They are. I, I mean, know. That, so how could they not get traffic? I mean, there should just be traffic 
I mean, what, they what could just take I, the trophy, put it in the middle of the street, and there's a parade. But this had nothing to again, do with traffic. There, there are people that chose people, to do other things. Yeah, you today. have to go to the parade is the problem. Right. What, what was I saying two days into our L.A. stay? Please, let's just get in one Uber and go to one place and then go one other place or come back because I'm tired of sitting in an Uber for an hour in traffic. It's no, 7 o'clock at night. I'm saying there would be a natural How many parade? local... Los Angelinos are sitting there saying, you know, I want to get myself in more traffic to go sit on the sidewalk in this parade Just throw in probably 85-degree weather the way it was out there. They're not going to go to the parade. Just throw, That's the issue. Just throw the trophy on a topless bus with the team, and it's automatically a parade because the streets are filled with cars. Or again, I'll throw out my idea. Beach party. I like no beach party. No parade. Just no parade. Something different. I like beach, beach party. I mean, do you remember the WNBA parade? No. Yeah, there was nobody there. Exactly. <laughs> no one remembers it because no one went to the parade. Yeah, but that, that's expected. Yes. That's they, expected. They should have gone to a high school gymnasium and thrown a party for their championship, guaranteeing it would be – well, I don't know that would guarantee it would be packed for WNBA, but something small to where you know you're going to have yeah, people there. Scale it. Scale it. For any, any celebration, you have to scale it. Primary complaint coming up in about 40 minutes. Looking forward to that. Nothing to complain about from the college basketball scene last night in Knoxville. Fantastic performance by the Vols, but the atmosphere is as good as it's going to get. Um, I would put last night's atmosphere up with anything across the country, um, and that's just not because we're sitting here in the state of Tennessee. Um, I had high expectations for the 9 p.m. Eastern tip-off in Knoxville at Thompson Bowling Arena against the Kentucky Wildcats. It fully delivered last night, and so did the Vols who played about as good as we've seen all year. If that, type, if that team shows up to the SEC tournament, if that team shows up to the NCAA tournament, they're getting out of the first weekend. But can they show that consistency? They, they took on a really good Kentucky team last night and from the wire, from the jump, uh, dominated them in the first half. And then we're, even with them, what, 31-30, I think was the score in the second half, they built their lead and uh, never let up. It, Kentucky was cutting it to eight points, ten points, and Tennessee found an answer throughout the way. Yeah, little Zakai Ziegler <clears throat> would always seemingly oh, come up with something. He was awesome. When it he's got to eight terrific. or ten points, he is fun to watch. Uh, great win for Tennessee. I mean, they dominated. It's fun to watch any team in a payback-type game. Exactly one month before, Kentucky shot 70% from the floor and 61% from three and beat Tennessee by 28. They scored 107 points. And Tennessee talked about it all week leading up to the game told the, the ESPN crew about it and said, that was personal. We didn't play the way we know we can play, and we got punked in that game. They did whatever they wanted offensively against us, and we take that personally. And to actually go out there and do the punking yourself is a credit to them. Kentucky is one of a handful of teams I think could win the national title. They're that talented. They're that good. I'm also laughing at the ESPN broadcasters when Ty Ty Washington goes out saying, I don't know who's going to score now for Kentucky. Pick one of the other six McDonald's All-Americans on the roster. There's plenty of scoring options at Kentucky. The game doesn't end because he goes out in the second half. Anyway, for Tennessee, I thought a really good performance. Undefeated at home. Tennessee is a top 10, top 10 biggest on-campus football stadium school. Top 10 on-campus basketball arena school also. Often overlooked. Rick Barnes said after the game, everyone wants to talk about the Blue Bloods. He said, I'll put the orange bloods in this arena when it's a big-time event up against any atmosphere in college great. basketball. And if you watched that game last night, it came through the television. We talked about Tennessee's droughts or 
drought and droughts in the Kentucky game, the first Kentucky game, that 107-point game. Kentucky, with its big drought last night, it's just crazy to think they could go that long without producing anything. I thought the fight was way overblown. I mean, it was still the number one. Not, not much went on in sports last night, clearly, because it was the number one like video highlight at ESPN.com an hour ago. And I rewatched it there to see if there was some fantastic commentary or something I missed there, and there wasn't. Yeah, they did. I saw the Sports Center highlight of it, and they didn't really get into. It. They kind of laughed it off about, boy, you know, it's a it's a rivalry when the strength coach is bowing up to people on the sideline. I, I'm going to save some of this for my primary complaint, one element of this whole deal. But there's no scenario where a strength coach on the end of the bench that's not even wearing what the rest of the, the coaching staff is wearing Can't be involved. Should, should be a part of the game. I mean, anyway, that's my, lesson. That's, my, that's my message to the strength coach. I don't want you being a part of the game in any He's way. He's Vernon Hargreaves. Stand up and walk away. Just you go I mean, behind I, the bench if you need to. He has a role. Yeah, he's I mean, better he's, than Vernon yeah, he, he, he does something, but also just don't. Anyway, we'll get into it later with primary complaint. Um, I thought Tennessee defensively in that game, one big thing they did that was a difference was they switched on everything. Uh, they had a hard time staying in front of Kentucky, really just getting driven to the basket and not switching. They did a much better job switching. Jonas, I do at 7-1 as a freshman. This guy didn't play up until four games ago. And then Kamwa goes down. He's getting 18 minutes in that game. Five block shots. Yeah, Barnes was very high on him. Uh, he's going to be a player. Ziegler is going to be a player. This Tennessee team is good right now. They're top five in America playing right now, the way they're playing. We've also seen where they can sure. not score. Well, it's that inconsistency and, that leaves you asking all these questions. And they're below 500 away from Thompson Bowling Arena. Right. But that's, I mean, you could say that about every team. I don't fully trust any team in America in a tough road environment. Well, but a, de a defensive team should win more on the road they than should, what they do. They should, and they have won some on the road, but it's against teams they should beat. They haven't gone on the road and beaten anyone yet that they would be a big underdog to, right? Um, this weekend, they'll get a chance. They'll be an underdog at Arkansas. Arkansas just knocked off number one Auburn at home. That's a big test for Tennessee. But at home in Knoxville... They're great. Kennedy Chandler, he's the superstar on that team from a talent perspective. He's the five-star guy who was an assumed one-and-done. He may not be a one-and-done now. Still may decide to go pro. He's figuring it out. He is figuring out and what Fulkerson, he needs to do at the right time of year. Fulkerson played his role last night. Fulkerson I mean, is such an enigma because he went from, again, two years ago, he had 27 points and single-handedly brought Tennessee back from 15 down in the second half to win at Rupp Arena. And now he's a role player. For Tennessee. But when he comes off the bench, they, he, Rick Barnes wanted to put him back in the starting lineup. He said, no, I'm better coming off the bench right now in this role. When he's coming off the bench and contributing in the low post, it adds a different element uh, to that Tennessee well, team. I've been impressed with his bounce back this year. He's always going to be a fan favorite for Tennessee fans. I was expecting more coming into this season, but he's starting the last three games to give you some of that. Get what he needed to do last night. Yes. Oh, he was great last night. Well, I mean, he... He, it's the small things that he brings to this team. It's the, that he wasn't doing early on. It, it's not the bank shots off one leg. You know, I'm not expecting that to go in all the time, although last night was awesome. It's the, it's the loose ball that he saved off of, uh, from oh, going out of bounds. He throws it off a Kentucky player. It's those small effort moments that Fulkerson saves possessions or gets an extra possession for you. That, that's why he's in the game. 
It's also, I think he was six for six or eight for eight from the free throw line. And one of those was two of them. Completely away from the ball, he gets run over on a screen. Kentucky starts to chip away a little bit, and he gets run over on a screen. That may sound like nothing, but those are the little throwaway plays that Fulkerson gives you. He gets an awkward body leaning rebound and draws a foul 90 feet from the basket and goes to the free throw line and hits both. Savvy plays like that is what he needs to do more of. He did a lot of it last night. And Paul, you brought up the skirmish. It was uh, certainly a, a different game after that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it created energy, no doubt about that. But as a, as a standalone fight, like the way it was sold on, on ESPN, it, it, there wasn't a hell of a lot to it. Well, it was, so it, it so, was 17 15. 17 15. Kentucky, and then was it 10 0 run? 10 0 run. And that's where Chandler got hot. He had back to back threes in that run. And then it was basically Ziggler and Chandler on a 10 0 run from that point on. And oh, by the way, Zakai Ziggler was the one who got one of the technicals that was in the middle of it. And he responded by taking Tennessee on a big spurt. And they never looked back. I mean, they went up 25 17 at that point. And they go was, up 14 at halftime. And uh, Kentucky never got closer than eight, eight in the second half. And then there were, uh, you know, there were moments, uh, there was a moment right around the 13-minute mark of the second half where Kentucky cut it to eight. You know, they, they got there a couple of different times, but each time Tennessee on the opposite end found an answer. It wasn't like they cut it to four and then they hit a three to get to seven and they're, you know, it didn't allow Kentucky to get back in it. What, eight, at, eight felt at, like a wall. Whatever. Like you never felt like they well, were. So, about to punch through. Here's, a, again, another sign of, uh, of great optimism for the future of Tennessee basketball. One time it got to eight, Tennessee responded with a tip-in by Idu to make it ten. They get a quick stop, and then guess who? Sakai Ziegler, Ziegler hits a three. They go up 13, and they go on, a, I think, another score another four or five at that point to completely put the game away. Ziegler has an uncanny ability of just instant energy. You rarely see that in any sport where a guy comes in and the game changes. Not just what he's doing, but the pace of the game changes when he enters the game. Well, and his, his ability to attack the basket while finding the open man for the dish yeah. is perfect. Well, and, or, and to or, get the or ball or towards the basket. He's 5'7". I'm thinking, how yeah. is Shibwe not blocking this shot on one of them? He just easily gets in, falling to the ground. And hits a and layup then, off and then the glass. loose the loose balls. I mean, he's he's one of the smallest guys out there, and he's coming up with it, and then immediately looking up court. He's not looking to call timeout. You know, he's finding the outlet while he's sitting down on the court. And before Calipari can call timeout, you've got a dunk on the other end for the balls. And wasn't there that one story? Uh, you have to fill in the details for me, Chad. But it stuck with me this this concept that they were looking to match up height or whatever relatively early, and he said to Barnes, "Don't worry." Like, uh, I, I, I can get shots up. I can do anything. Yeah, you don't he ever said, have to worry about you, me. You don't have to worry about me getting punked, I think is what he said, against anyone bigger than me. There were a couple times where he got matched up with Toppin, who's 6'9", uh, on a switch, and that Kentucky did not do a good job of getting the ball to him at that point. But he's down there muscling uh, with him. I mean, the guy is instant energy uh, off the bench, and he's, he's in the game in winning time. That, that lineup at the end of the game now is Chandler, Ziegler, two point guards. Yes. Josiah Jordan James, John Fulkerson. I mean, that that's the lineup they're going with uh, at the end of the game. And, and Vescovy, you know, very small, Not but they they get the job done. So some advice on the uh, the parades from Tom Brady to Matthew Stafford. Uh, Stafford's on the parade. He's got a nice stogie going. He's downing some beers. 
and Brady retweets a video and says, mix in a water, Matt. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, uh, a head coach who's been a part of a championship parade. And now he's going to the hall in Canton. Pro Football Hall of Famer Dick Vermeil joins us next on OutKick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Glad you're with us on Outkick 360 from 6th and Peabody in Nashville and across the Outkick network. We hope you're having a great afternoon. We're with Yeehaw Beer, Old Smoky Moonshine, with Chad Withrow and Paul Koharski. I'm Jonathan Hutton. Pleased to be joined by a coach headed to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. He'll be enshrined this summer. He took over three losing teams over three decades and turned them into winners. Coach Dick Vermeil joins us uh, via Zoom. Coach, congratulations on the honor. Thank you. I know it's been a long wait and uh, certainly a historic run throughout your career. Uh, what was it like learning that, that you would, in fact, be enshrined into Canton this year? Almost unbelievable. You know, it had been rumored for a long time. Of course, uh, I received in late June the fact that I was a finalist. And if a coach was going to go in, it would be me. But, you know, I'm not a pessimist. I always look positive at things, but I did evaluate it. And there'd only been 10 coaches go in in the last 25 years. So I knew it wasn't a lock. But uh, then I got the final word here a couple of weeks ago. And Kurt Warner and a whole production staff showed up at our house here out in the country in Chester County, Pennsylvania at eight o'clock in the morning, believe it or not. And uh, there they were. And it just it absolutely startled me almost to the overwhelming state. Believe me. You're in some ways viewed as uh, maybe the, the patron saint of the burnout coach, uh, having, having left uh, the, the, the Eagles after 82 and not reemerging all the way until 99 with the, with the Rams. Uh, we hear a lot now. We see Sean Payton leaving. There were rumors about McVay. Um, we know John Madden left and, and never came back. Uh, do you hear from coaches who are dealing with some of the things you dealt with at the end of your Eagles tenure where you felt like you yeah. needed to step away? Over the years I have. Yeah. Over the years I've talked to a few I've had, I've had coaches wives call me. Okay. But really, you know, today there's so many more modern terms they use when a player is a so-called burnout, but now they call it depressed. He's going through a state of depression and or all these different kinds of things. I, I don't know what I really was. I knew I needed a break, okay? And I, I knew that I, I had la- allowed a, a passion to become an obsession. And I knew that I was not handling the, the loss as well because I blamed myself for it. And, uh, all the time I was beating myself down. Therefore, I wasn't a good coach in preparation for the next ball game. Uh, I spent too much time thinking about what I should have done last week, you know? And so all those things sort of build up inside you. And uh, my wife was the one that gave me the term. Why don't you just say you're burnout? And I didn't want to pin a psychological term to that or anything like that. Uh, I meant it innocently. 
in instantly, excuse me, I can't even speak. But anyway, later I met Dr. Freudenberger who wrote the book. Okay. Uh, amazing guy. And I sat down with him and I got home and I said, Carol, have you ever talked to this guy? He nailed me to the cross. And she said, no, I never talked to him. Dick. But anyway, it took me a little while to get over it and grow and mature. And I didn't expect to be out for 14 years. The broadcasting was fun. It was stealing for a living, you know, really. Because uh, in those days, they never paid the coaches like they paid the coaches. I doubled my salary the first year in broadcasting and I was making coaching, you know. So that wasn't bad to take either. You know, you, you talked to earlier in this interview about you're an optimist by nature and you're pessimistic about the Pro Football Hall of Fame until it happened for you. Um, I've always thought of you as an optimistic guy, a cheerful guy also. Is it difficult to be that way and be a football coach in the NFL? Is this a profession that makes it hard to be optimistic? I, I don't think so. You know, first you have to be able to handle the negatives properly, the adversity properly, and, and properly pace, uh, place those in your mind physically and emotionally and in the real world. And, you know, I, I was fortunate. I came up through coaching at high school, junior college, Stanford as an assistant, UCLA as a head coach, NFL as an assistant, NFL as head coach. And uh, it allowed me to grow each uh, to a little better level of leadership skills each time I made the next step. And I learned a lot over the years. Then taking a break for 14 years and coming back, I've watched so many coaches coach. And having credibility in the profession, I was allowed in meeting rooms, head coaches meeting rooms, quarterback meeting rooms, all these kinds of things. And I, I observed a lot. I learned a lot. I listened a lot. And I stored it all back. And I said to myself many times, boy, this is better than the way I did it. Or sometimes I said, you know, I was doing it better than the way they're doing it. But I think when I went back in, I was better prepared uh, to be the leader of an organization and not so much worry about all the X's and O's, and the details of what we're going to do on third down. You know, and I think I, better I did a better job throughout the entire organization to build a football team. I love the story of your path to the NFL because prior to the NFL, some may not know, Dick Vermeil with us, by the way, on Outkick 360, you had, you had coached with George Allen and Bill Walsh you had coached alongside at UCLA. John Wooden was the head basketball coach. You beat Woody Hayes in the Rose Bowl head-to-head, -head, and you nearly stayed at UCLA. Uh, in fact, I think you turned down Philadelphia initially, and then you told right. your staff, and they were like, what, what are you doing? And, yeah. and I, your family was upset you ended up taking the Philly job, weren't they? Yeah, they voted not to go. But, you know, sometimes <laughs> you have to make decisions that are tough on everybody. Yeah. And – the first year here in the East was tough on my kids. You know, they weren't used to this kind of weather. It was just different, but they gradually grew to adjust it and love it. They, hey, two of the boys that the boys live here now, my daughter lives in California and Florida. So it all worked out right. But uh, UCLA was a wonderful place. You know, we just beat the number one team in the country. And I really believe we could build a national championship football team there because I had a great athletic director in JD Morgan, a great, chancellor of the university and we had great support from people and i just you know but you know I, I talked to george allen and george allen says take the job i talked to chuck knox who before he says take the job so uh, after four days i took the job and uh jim murray did a great job of selling me so did uh, leonard toast the owner and you know in the seven years i worked for those people they never did less than they said they would do they always did more and we became lifelong friends. You know, I, I'm, 
I'm curious. I've never heard a bad story about John Wooden whatsoever. Did he embrace oh, the Did he embrace the football program the way I probably expect he did? Well, you know, he uh, he sort of took me under his wing. He went, you know, I had an open door policy with him, and he was really retired when I came back as the head coach. But he was there, and he would eat breakfast almost every morning during training camp with me uh, because he would he would walk wooden track. And then, you know, the John wouldn't track and then come in and sit with the team as they had breakfast before we go to the locker rooms and start working. And uh, I, he became my go-to guy and he really helped me a lot. You know, the great thing that John wouldn't have, he had the ability to say so much in very few words, you know, uh, it didn't have to be a long discussion of explanation of what he was thinking. He had great ability to define what he was going to say to you. And he, re- he really helped me. He helped me. In fact, my first year back in coaching, we had lost eight in a row. You almost have, you almost have to give up games to lose eight in a row. Okay? <laughs> you did. On the morning after the eighth loss, my secretary or administrative assistant comes in and says, Coach wants to talk to you. I'm in St. Louis. I says, Coach who? She says, Coach wouldn't. So I got on the phone. Got him. I got Did I need this phone call? I says, Coach wouldn't. It's Dick Vermeil. Thank you for calling me. He says, I just want you to know, you know what you're doing. You've done it before and you will do it again. Don't allow doubt to enter your mind and attack your problems, not your people, and get it done. And I, he says, I have confidence you will get it done. And hung up. That was it. I'll tell you, he, <laughs> you talk about fill you up your tank with high premium gasoline. John Wooden did that for me that day. That's an incredible story, yes. and wouldn't we all be lucky to walk or run on a track named oh, after did. ourselves uh, like he could <laughs> on, on John Wooden track every day? Uh, Dick Vermills, our guest on Outkick 360. Um, Coach, watching Invincible and watching Greg Kinnear uh, portray you, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, did Dick Vermeil handpick Greg Kinnear to play him in a movie? Because I thought it was perfect from the look to everything uh, in 1978, I believe it was, with the Philadelphia Eagles – uh, did you have any say in the casting of Greg Kinnear playing you in that movie? I did not. In fact, I read the script in total. And when I got back, we, I read it on a trip traveling to a game. Uh, when I was early, I think it was 2001 for the Chiefs. And uh, I said, you know, guys, there's a lot of things in this script that aren't true. Not true and not even close. And they said, well, coach, I'll tell you what. We're telling us we're not doing a documentary. We're telling a story. And they did tell the story. It was a good story. It's last forever. I still have people stop me and say they just watched Invincible. Some people have watched it many times. And uh, they did a good they did a good job with the story. No question. This next movie, Kurt Warner's movie, uh, there's a uh, there's a lot to it. A lot more than just a football story. You know, and uh, I never talked to I talked to him one time for about 15 minutes. And what added credibility in my evaluation of the movie, they actually used some things I said to Kurt. I can remember like it was yesterday saying, Kurt, there's something about you I really like, and I can't wait to find out what it is. Well, they used that statement in the movie, you know, and, and, and moved on that statement. So that made me feel good. So, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a great movie. I, I tell you, I get emails, text messages, and phone calls weekly now, sometimes daily on people saying they saw the movie and absolutely loved it. So Dick Vermeil's portrayed an American dream, which is Kurt Warner's story. 
and you mentioned Invincible. So this means, Coach, that you were portrayed twice in the movies. And if I'm not mistaken, during your presentation in the Hall of Fame meeting, which I'm lucky enough to be a part of, uh, they came up with other people from American sports history who've been portrayed twice in movies. I I wish I had my notebook in front of me, which I don't. My Hall of Fame notes uh, have been removed from my bag. I think the other two names they came up with were Babe Ruth and Secretariat that have been in two <laughs> movies. I have to check with Howard Balls around that. you were going to say Vince Lombardi or Tom Landry or, somebody, or George Allen, something like that. Well, you know, I, uh, I feel honored to be that. It was certainly not a plan, uh, but I always did look for the underdog. I love giving kids an opportunity to play. And I was so lucky in Philadelphia. You know, we didn't have first, second or third round pick my first year, my second year and my third year, we didn't have a first and second. So I looked for free agent kids that had a passion and and gave them a lot of time to show me they could play. And I was so fortunate. I think the number of my first Super Bowl team were 17 college free agents within my roster on that team. The London Fletchers at St. Louis Rams, Kurt Warner. London Fletcher is a defensive Kurt Warner. You know, he's played, what, 17 years and never missed a game. College free agent was supposedly too small. You know, great. He's To me, he's a Hall of Fame linebacker. He's a Hall of Fame linebacker. And whether he gets in, I don't know or not. But his story is equivalent to Kurt Warner's. Coach Vermeil, you were known for being an extremely hard worker. Who was the hardest working player you coached? Is there one that comes to mind that tops the list? You know, I had so many of them, it would be hard to rank because I didn't keep those that wouldn't work. And when all the players are surrounded by guys that are working like them, many times they try to, you know, they try to work harder than the other guy because they too want to be a good example. But I had so many really hard, hard workers. Herman Edwards, now a coach, was extremely dedicated, detailed defensive back corner worker on his skills because, you know, he was a 4740 guy. He's got 32 interceptions in his career, but he worked so hard on his skills so he could play well, regardless of not having great speed. He, he comes to mind, you know, uh, Bill Berge, my inside linebacker, a superstar player when I got here, one of the few guys they traded for giving him a first round pick that was still on the roster. And he set an example for a lot of guys on defense, how to work, how to work. You know, you would think sometimes your best player would loaf, not him, not him. And I I credit him many times from being a foundation guy, you know, Eric Hicks in Kansas city, a defensive lineman, a free agent guy that was there when I got there. I mean, you talk about work. I mean, if anyone watched him and they didn't work like him, they'd be embarrassed. You know, you know, DeMarco Farr at St. Louis Rams, Kevin Carter, St. Louis Rams, lives in Tennessee there. Yes. You know, these kind of guys, uh, they're, you know, they're great examples and they're infectious to the rest of your roster. Now, those guys, were, I was so fortunate. First off, like I said, I did not keep a guy that wouldn't work. I don't trust him. I just don't. And, uh, and if my first Super Bowl team, the roster I took over, in five years, 12 guys off the original roster went to the Super Bowl with me. St. Louis Rams, in three years, we had nine guys on the roster that went to the Super Bowl. But I'll tell you, those nine guys were examples. They were the foundation. 
They, I didn't take them. They took me. They took me. You know, I, I, I think I was successful in teaching kids that hard work is not a form of punishment. It's a solution. And there is absolutely no correlation between working less and getting better. I don't care if you want to be a better golfer, you know, and I sold that passionately every day. And I'm sure you got that from your father who uh, no question. you have said you, you never saw him with clean hands. He, he ran a well, towing company. What, what would your father, garage, yeah. what would your father think about this honor that you've, I mean, this is the ultimate honor that you could, you could have earned and, and you're there going into the hall. Well, I, I think he would be very humble about it. He'd be very proud. You know, he was very, very proud of the Vermeil family name. His grandfather brought it over from the south of France above Nice there. And, you know, I didn't have any rules to the kid. When I left the house, he just said, just remember you're a Vermeil. And I, so I think this kind of an accomplishment would magnify the importance of the name Vermeil in his mind and take great pride in it. You spoke very strongly. Um after after the NFL Honors show about Torrey Holt, you join obviously Orlando Pace, Kirk Warner, Isaac Bruce, Marshall Falk from from the '99 Super Bowl team. Uh, you fully expect Torrey Holt to join that group? It sounded like. Oh, I do. You know, so forth. You know, I started in the league in 1969, so that's five decades I was in the league. I saw Hall of Famers. I coached 15 of them. Okay. I worked with three NFL Hall of Fame coaches. I know what they look like, you know, and it usually it doesn't take very long to determine. Now, he may only be a rookie. He may be a second year kid, but you, having all the experience behind you and the exposure to other great players, to Isaac Bruce's and these kind of guys, you, not only that, the guys you coached against, you know what they look like. Torrey Holt is a Hall of Famer. London Fletcher is a Hall of Famer. My left guard at Kansas City, Brian Waters, believe it or not, is a Hall of Famer. Will he get in there? I don't know. You know, so if you don't come on as a first-round pick with high expectations, Brian Waters came in as a league as a free agent, okay? When I got there, he was Kansas City was covering punts and kickoffs. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame offensive guard. I've coached him before. I know what they look like. Crazy to think that your dad ran a garage. Nick Saban's dad owned a gas station and garage also. So something about being, Tom Landry's. Yeah, wow. How about that? That's incredible. Uh, something to that about being taught that work ethic for sure and seeing that every day. Um, every time I see an interview, talk to you, you've got such an infectious personality. And I think this is a great recruiter. This is a great college football coach recruiter. How good of a recruiter were you when you coached in college? How much did you enjoy that part of coaching college football? You know, I enjoyed it. I didn't like some of the things that would go on in the old days that don't go on anymore. Uh, but I loved meeting mom and dad. Wherever I saw an outstanding mom and dad, I recruited harder to get that kid. I can think of the McNeil family, Rod McNeil, uh, Freddie McNeil, Rod went to USC. I coached him. To, I recruited him to Stanford and lost him to SC. Freddie McNeil, I got him to come to UCLA. What, he played 14 years for the Vikings. I can remember these home visits and those people. Uh, Howard Williams, his dad was involved with his first space rocket going in to the moon damn near. Uh, I met so many wonderful people. I enjoyed the relationships with those. Now, believe it or not, I still hear from a lot of them. 
So we, uh, we certainly, anyone that would go back in the, the 99 season would remember the, the iconic press conference of you discussing Trent Green's injury and then saying, we will rally around Kurt Warner and we will play good football. When did it actually, when did it click with you and the, and the coaching staff that what Kurt Warner was doing would turn into the greatest show on turf as we know it today? When did it click that, you know what, that we're actually going to pick up right where we thought we would be with Trent and everything's going to fall into place? You know, that was built on a foundation of watching him his first year with us as our third quarterback. You know, the third quarterback runs the opponent's offense against the defense three days a week. And I watched him for 16 weeks do it. And I and many times I walk off the field and I say, you know something? Either this kid can play or our defense stinks. Because he <laughs> so that's that confidence. See, the assistant coaches don't get to see him like I saw him. As a head coach, and I learned this because when I was the Eagles, I ran my own offense, coached my own quarterbacks, called my own plays. I was the coordinator. And with, when I came back after 14 years, I knew I couldn't do that. But being a head coach and overall in, on the field, that gave, freed me up to watch everybody. And me specifically, I'm an old quarterback coach, watch the quarterback. And that's what gave me the depth of confidence when I said we will go with Kurt Warner and we will play good football because I really thought he would. Now, the problem with all of us is many times we say, you know, he can do it in the practice field against running plays off somebody's cards. But how about under pressure with 80,000 people saying, maybe he can't do it then. You know, I never felt that way about him. And God, did he prove me right and the coaches that coached him. You know, Mike Marks did a beautiful job. Al Saunders. Jim Hannafin, John Ramp, all these guys were coaching, but uh, they did a beautiful job with this guy. And uh, I could, no way could I predict that he could do what he could do. And I, I'll tell you, I've told this to a number of people. The fourth to fifth game of the season, we played the 49ers in St. Louis. They had beaten the Rams 17 times in a row. Okay already four times in a row against my first two years against me coaching. And at the end of the first quarter, we're ahead 21 to nothing. And the 49ers have been in the playoffs a year before. And I said, I turned to Jim Hannafin. I said, Jim, this guy, this, this guy could freaking play. And so we beat the hell out of him. We come in the meeting room on Monday, on Monday, we're, we're now five and zero, oh, and we are blowing people out. And he's he's I think he's at that time he's throwing eighteen touchdowns and three interceptions. Had three games of quarterback efficiency rating over hundred and thirty, <laughs> unbelievable. And I say to the roster, in front of the team, you know, guys, we're very very fortunate because there's only one team in the league left that can beat us. And fortunately, they're all sitting in this room. If we keep doing what we're capable of doing, don't get fat heads that keep working every day to hone our skills. We'll win it all. I said, no, I don't want you to tell anybody outside this meeting room. I don't want you to tell media, TV, or anybody. This is between us, but we will win it all. That's I promise to God that's exactly what I told them. And they made it come true. Now it came down to Mike Jones's tackle. <laughs> it's just, oh, I could not prick predict that but due to great coaches mike march peter junda john bunning all these guys uh, frank gans senior coach in the special teams uh, the finest coach i've ever been around because 
that was all put together properly. We won it all. Coach, we got to let you go, but I wanted to ask because I know you're a big wine guy and you've got your own uh, vintage. Thank what you. Uh, did you have a special bottle for on on the occasion uh, when when you found out? Uh you know, I don't drink a lot of Vermeil wine at home because I had too much it what before I started the business of, of the old stuff and it's getting old. But you know, we we specialize in the Cabernets. The, we have two specific areas in the vineyard that I'm involved with in Calistoga, a Rosedale Block and a Pickett Road Block. And then we have the John Weaver Meal, which is a Cabernet with a little Cabernet Franc in it. And those three Cabernets will compete. I'm not going to tell you they're better with the best wines in the Napa Valley. And so I'm proud of it. We only make anywhere from 1,700 cases this year, bottling to 2,500 cases. But if people check out Vermeer Wines, Google it, you'll find out in we're doing well. We're doing. I have, I've have my wine consultant is Thomas Brown. I call him Bill Belichick of the Napa Valley. Nobody does it any better. Andy Jones, my winemaker that works with him, they do. A, they make me look smart, just like Mike Marks did, Jim Hannafin did, and Al <laughs> Saunders did. Okay. Now he can have the Hall of Fame edition, the limited edition Hall of Fame bottle, maybe. We're gonna of- make some. From Vermil Wines, absolutely perfect. Vermilwines.com. Yeah, congratulations. We appreciate this visit. It's been a real treat, and uh, hopefully, we can do this again soon because we're just scratching the surface uh, I, on I, some I, stories. I love, I love talking football and the people that know what they're talking about. Go see American Underdog if you haven't already. Thank you so absolutely. much, Coach. Thank you, Coach. Take care, guys. There's Dick Vermil, uh, Vermilwines.com, and he is a Pro Football Hall of Fame coach. What a guy! Coming up, primary complaint on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Outkick 360 rolls on with primary complaints each Wednesday. And I'll kick it off with my complaint about NBC. NBC and Super Bowl 56 coverage. Hours upon hours of pregame coverage. And then postgame, all they did was talk about how they're about to go to Beijing to the Olympic Games and gave you a countdown. Maria Taylor couldn't tell us how many minutes were left. Six minutes, five minutes. Who cares? Mike Tirico flew back from Beijing For the Super Bowl, you have interviews to be told, stories to be told with Sean McVay, Aaron Donald, Matthew Stafford, OBJ, and more. Stick with America's game instead of sending us to the communist games. That's my primary complaint. No one cares in America about these Olympics, that is for sure. My primary complaint this week, something I do care about, the cop-out double technical call by officials in basketball. We saw a classic example of this last night. And if you're watching us right now, you're seeing it. Tennessee versus Kentucky. John Fulkerson goes into the bench. Santiago Vescovi, his teammate, goes to help him up. And some puffed-up Sir Swolio five-foot-five strength coach named Rob Harris bows up to this college kid for daring to go and try to help his teammate up. 
Get away from my bench, he says. Zakai Ziegler nudges the guy out of the way so he can help his teammate up. A small little fracas ensues, and guess what the call is? You got it. Cop out, double technical. Instead of doing what's right after reviewing it and say, oh, this is the guy most responsible. He's the one that's going to get the technical. This is the equivalent of a kid getting jumped on a playground in school and both of the people getting suspended when the kid fights back. It's ridiculous. Call a technical on one person, the one most responsible. Don't go with the cop-out, double technical. That is my primary complaint. They have lights in Tyler that area. Tyler Castle, next up uh, for us. In for the chairman of the board, David Reed. Hey, guys. So my primary complaint is streaming services right now. Um, last night I tried to watch the Hawks-Cavs game on Bally Sports. Yeah. And the stream didn't even work. Um, didn't work at all. The stream was down on Roku. Then I tried to turn on the Balls Kentucky start on ESPN3, and there was no audio, just static. <laughs> just static. On top of that, I tried to watch Hulu the other day, and the commercials were so loud compared to the program that I ended up buying the premium service so that I didn't have to watch the commercials at all. Tyler Castle is now... They've gone from cutting the cord to extending the cord. They got you. <laughs> he was the, the one sport. person trying PK. to stream that Hawks-Cavs game. How come too? such bad lighting in that corner of Thompson uh, Bowling Arena? My primary complaint, um, betting services, I, this seems to apply on all of them. I, I wanted to place a bet here, this back in the AFC Championship game, a couple Joe Mixon things. But you get to the bottom of this, and it won't let you pair them in a parlay, which is their uh, thing. Some of your selections can't be combined in a single parlay. That's fine. Tell me why. I, I want to have some logic here so I know the kind of things that I can't pair in a parlay. And we've discussed this before. I want to put this and this together. It won't let me. But none of us have come up with the formula. They don't want you to have a winner. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> I, Those I, I were never, both losers, by the way. I never know the oh, combination really? <laughs> either. It's frustrating. <laughs> so FanDuel lost saved. out on Paul's money. <laughs> yeah, I might have been an individual. <laughs> you should be thinking instead of complaining about yeah. Other times I have winners, believe it or not. Coming up, the fifth year for head coaches and quarterback pairings across the NFL and what we can take from them moving forward. That's next on Outkick 360.